welcome. Welcome to this next moment of our gathering together. We've worshipped, we've come to our the Advent liturgy, the Advent space together. We've connected, we've said hi to each other, we've shared some wonderful baked treats today. Thank you to our bakers. You know who you are. Biscotti, star biscuits, scorched almonds. Who baked the scorched almonds? That's what I'd like to know. Delicious. Um, it's getting festive, eh? It's getting festive. Feels good. Uh, hey, my name is Dan. If we haven't met before, it's nice to have you with us this morning as we gather together as Central Vineyard. And we have been doing a series for, we are in month number six of the series. It's been half the year as we have done Holy Following Christ, a, a series that has just sought to look at the answer of, okay, if Jesus has come to promise us life abundant, life better than we could imagine, parisos zoe, as he said, what is that life like? Like, what actually is it? And we've, we've broken it up into some facets. We've looked at Jesus' literal lived life. We've broken it up into these different facets and we've looked at each one for a month each. So we've done in our catalogue, in our archive, you can go back and you can listen to the podcast and you can listen to a month on each of these. We, we started with the, the spirit-empowered life. Then we came across to the word-anchored life. Then we went to the consecrated life, the, the holy life, the set-apart life is another way to say that, the compassionate life. Then we went to the prayer-filled life, and we are finishing at Advent with the incarnational life. Christmas is the incarnation, so we have timed that to perfection. Brilliant series planning there. The incarnational life. And so today, uh, as we get started on part two of the incarnational life, I want to invite Janaya to come. And Etu, why don't we stand? And we're going to stand for the reading of today's text, which is from 1 John 1, 1 to 4. Thanks, Janaya. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our very own eyes and touched him with his, our very own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. This is the word of God for us this morning. Praise be to God. Thank you, Jenna. Grab a seat. Now, um, I've talked a bit about music in a lot of my sermons, and so this won't come as a surprise to many of you, but um, I, I'm a vinyl guy. I love vinyl records. I love my record collection. Uh, Gab and I have often joked uh, this isn't good marriage advice here, but um, we've often joked that if we did get divorced, all I'm taking is my record collection and some bottles of whiskey. That's basically all I have in our whole house. The rest is hers. Uh, the joke ends there. Moving on. Um, I'm a vinyl guy, and one of the things about vinyls is you have this album, a whole album, but it's split into two. Sometimes it's split into four, depending on the length of the album, and it's put on two records in an album. And, and so you have these different sides 
You, you have um, side A, you have side B. And, and last Sunday, I did a talk that was called God With Us. God With Us. And in that, we were considering St. Paul's important question in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, where he says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Do we not know that our bodies, flesh, bone, this tactile place, is a place where God now dwells? That was side A of the album. And today I want to turn the record over and I want to do side B. We're keeping the same album playing, but we're listening to the other side now. Today I want to do a talk that is entitled The Tactility of Temple. Just a little side note there, I reckon that would actually just make a really great album name. (laughs) Singer-songwriter Dan Sheed and his new album, The Tactility of Temple. Nick, you can have that one for the next one if you want, buddy. Yeah, it's a good one. Now, all of this is is because we are looking at the incarnational life. This idea that our matter is not separated from God, but it's entwined with God. And as we talk about matter, we are talking about something that is tactile. We can touch it. We can hear it. We can see it. We can witness it. That's a huge idea. That's a big idea. But actually, as we discovered last week, for St. Paul, his whole way of being and seeing his body was, was actually tied to this Jewish worldview that he had, a deeply Jewish worldview, where this was incredibly normal. This was normal. And there's a couple of key pieces that are at play as we think about what St. Paul said about asking, do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And one of those key pieces is actually found in this word, temple. There's a tactile part of the story of the people of God placed in history. And he's drawing on that tactility. He's drawing on that piece and he's, he's using that to cultivate his answer. You know, do, we, do we see what he sees when he uses that word? What, what was coming to mind with Paul when he used that word? And, and maybe a more important question is, what should come to mind for us? What should come to mind when we think of the word temple? Well, the Greek word here in the scriptures is the word naos. And this word is, it means like a shrine or a space or a building that has been dedicated to a deity. So it's it's a word about physical things that have been met with a divine presence. And and it's a word that the Greeks would have known and seen straight away as Paul used it in that sentence. They would have known he's talking about a vehicle for something of spirit. But Paul isn't seeing it that way. He's saying you can't actually have one separated from the other. What he's actually saying is you need a temple to have a space for the divine to be at play. So just like if you were to walk past a bank and you would expect that in a bank there would be money, there would be finance, there'd be mortgages as the topic of work, or just if you were to walk past an engineering workshop one day, you'd expect that there'd be the like the zzzing of, of welding and the buzzing of metal being cut. You'd expect that from an engineering workshop. So it is with temple. Temple is to get our imaginations thinking, this is a place of spirit entwining with matter. Now there's a big story behind all of that, a really big story. 
And so to understand Paul, we just need to uncover three things when we think about the temple today. Three things that I want to cover. Firstly, we need to realize the Jewish story of the creation cosmos as temple. Secondly, we need to know a bit about the actual temples of Israel, the ones that they built. And lastly, we need to talk about this new temple that Jesus came to establish, a new temple that he came to make. So we'll start with the first one, creation cosmos as temple. Now for this, uh, we need to start right back at the start of our Bibles. We need to go back to the very first words, to the, the faith origin story that we have, where the writers open up how God opened, how God created and creation is good. The opening words of the Bible are this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it goes on to recount the story of how God had taken the chaos of nothing and he had ordered it into good and purposeful creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They may be the first words of the Bible, but actually for most of us, we would probably relate more with the title of this book, which is, In the Beginning, We Misunderstood. The authors in this book are making an incredibly valid point. Most of us are making a grave error with the handling of the book of Genesis. We're seeking answers from a book that is not trying to provide the answers that we actually wish it to provide. So in our post-enlightenment scientific world, we desperately want to turn around and to look at this opening account of Genesis to affirm and to line up with scientific findings that our Western progress has landed us in. We try and we bend and we buckle everything about the days were this long or the days were this long or you know, evolution can fit or evolution doesn't fit. Or, you know, and these are all arguments that, that are valid to have, but at the same time, sadly, this is just missing the point. The authors are not trying to make that argument. In the beginning of the Bible, we have sadly misunderstood. Another helpful way to think about this is from Dr. John Walton. He says this in this really, really helpful book, The Lost World of Genesis 1. He says, We believe the Bible was written for us, that it's for everyone of all times and places because it's God's word. But it wasn't written to us. It wasn't written in our language. It wasn't written with our culture in mind and in our culture in view. You seeing the difference there? Yeah, it was written for us. There's a story that moves through the ages here that is still for us, but it wasn't written to us. There's dynamics at play that we have to engage with correctly. You know, firstly, we need to ground the book of Genesis in its right time and its right place of history. God didn't create the world and then just kind of dump the book of Genesis alongside it like some sort of help manual. It's not like some manual you put out of a box of a product you've just bought. This story came from Israel post being in Egypt. Moses is regarded as the author of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And all five of those books together make up a collected story of Israel as these covenant people with their God. It's an incredibly important story. It's a beautiful story. It's a connected story full of so much beauty. And all in, in that, there's different kinds of literature as we're reading those five different books play out. Some of the literature is just statistics. Some of it is census data. 
I mean, some of you are going to start your Bible in one year in a couple of days' time as you start on the new year. And about February and March, it's going to get wobbly because <laughs> you're going to end up in a giant census for quite a few days going, what? why do I have to read this? Welcome to the statistics. Some of the Bible is historic story. Some of it's recollections of laws. Some of it's poetic narrative. But the emphasis is this. Regardless of whatever type of literature you are holding, all of it is one connected story of the covenant with God and his people. And importantly, it is grounded in a time of seeing the world through the eyes of a certain worldview. We talked about this last week. We're dipping in again. Which means with that worldview was literally a view of the world, a view of the cosmos, a view of how the world sat in the universe. You know, how did they think the universe worked? What was holding it together? Which brings us to the opening of Genesis. We, we read back and we ask all kinds of questions of this moment of the Bible. How long were the days? How old is the earth? Were there dinosaurs there? Were they re- was there really some sort of talking snake? Did Adam have a belly button? And sadly, these are all the wrong questions. They're not the questions that would have been sitting in the original context as these people were holding the story. Dan Kimball, in his very helpful book, How Not to Read the Bible, he lists what the core questions were sitting in this moment. These were the questions the people of God were asking as the Genesis story arrived in their midst. Are we going to survive here in the desert? Are we safe here? Is there really only one God? What about all the Egyptian gods? Are they angry that we've left Egypt? Is this God who rescued us still here? Or are we now alone? What do we have to do to please this one God so that he will have crops that won't fail and have food for our families? Should we worship the sun? Should we worship the moon like the Egyptians did? Should we worship like the Canaanites who are now nearby? Is the Egyptian story of the world the uh, the one that is the true one? These are the questions they are asking together. Because they have been in Egypt. And in Egypt, there was a creation story. Here's a little picture here of this Egyptian creation story. It goes a bit like this. The world was formless, it was dark. And one of the Egyptian gods separated water from land. Then the offspring of that god, Geb, he becomes the earth. There he is lying at the bottom. The goddess Nut holds up the, the, um, becomes the sky. And in this image, um, we can see that Nut is holding the sky up. She's the one in the middle there. The Egyptians believed that there were waters above the sky and the sun and the moon moved along this this water a little bit like boats moving along a river. And so there's different gods guiding them along the river day and night, day and night. And this is the story the Israelites had likely witnessed while they were in Egypt. And it sits as the seedbed for the Torah. And with those questions and with this perspective in mind, the creation story starts to be put on the table. It sends us into finding some wonderful answers as we reconsider the misunderstandings we've had of it and put them into the context of the story in its right place. Like for one, some answers that come to mind. The Genesis account is not focused on a material argument. It's telling of functional purpose. In this Israelite covenant story, there are not multiple gods at play. There is one. And this one God is also in some form of relation in himself. We actually see the start of the Trinity emerging in this first chapter of the Bible. 
And we see that this one God creates a good creation and it has been given a good purpose. This is where it starts out. Everything right, everything as it should be. It's a picture of everything in shalom, everything as it should be. It's right. It's working itself. There are no other gods making everything else work. It's just working because the provision of God has made it work. And it doesn't end there. One of the unique things of the Israelite creation story is that on the seventh day, God rests. I mean, this, this image is profound. The Egyptian gods weren't at rest. This God was. And this image, this image is that like a king taking up his place on the throne of his kingdom. This God has, has in such joy of what he has made that he just places himself amongst it to behold it and to be full of joy. He's at one with what he's made and what he has made is at one with him. In the Egyptian story, the gods were not resting. They were still working hard and they had to be pleased. But in this story, God has done his work. The world is as it should be. And now he is resting in it. The cosmos has become God's temple and he has come to rule and rest in it. Now, theologically, I've just taken you through some pretty big picture of theology there, and it's called the temple perspective. And the Genesis account is the temple perspective of creation. Uh, back to that book by John Walton. I'll just give you a little excerpt here just to see what he's saying. He says, the purpose of this book has been to introduce the reader to a careful reconsideration of the nature of Genesis 1. I have proposed that the most careful, responsible reading of the text will proceed with the understanding that it is ancient literature, not modern science. And when we read the text in the context of the ancient world, we discover that what the author truly intended to communicate and what his audience would have clearly understood is far different from what has been traditionally understood about the passage. The position that I have proposed regarding Genesis 1 may be designated the cosmic temple inauguration view. God setting up his temple. Is the other way we could say that. This label picks up the most important aspect of the view. The cosmos is being given its functions as God's temple, where he has taken up his residence and from where he runs the cosmos. This world is his headquarters. Big stuff. But then it helps to make sense of the next piece that I think a lot of us get tripped over as well. Later on in chapter one, we see these passages here. God said, let us make, so notice us, us, Trinitarian God at play. Interesting, eh? Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This idea, image of God, I think a lot of us have probably dabbled in this idea. A lot of us will be familiar with this idea. We've been in church in a while. Oh yeah, yeah, we, we carry the image of God in us. You know, we kind, of, we kind of know that. Well, what's going on here? What's going on here is fascinating when we look with the temple view. So Egyptian and Mesopotamian temples, again, where, where Israel had just been, they had idols. Here are some here. Here's how they worked. You made an idol of a god 
that you were trying to represent and you worshipped it because it not only represents the God, but the God is dwelling in it and God is working through it. So you'd have this little idol in your home and God would bless you through the idol being there and God will hear you from the idol that you are offering to. Now, for the Genesis account to use this language of idol, it's this, it's this Aramaic word salem, and it translates both ways, image, idols. The image of a God, the idol of a God. It could go both, both ways. The Genesis account is using this language of let us make human beings in our salem to take from this idea that mankind has been made like these little idols and placed carrying the image that they bear. The word for image is this word salem and it translates both ways. And it's, it's this idea that our humanity is one of being walking, breathing salems. We are the image bearers of God in his temple of creation. You know, we're not the angels of the heavens. We're not the animals of the land. We are the divine intersection in between where flesh and spirit meet. We are the ones who carry the image of God and we carry the purposes of God as we work in his temple. And all of that just from the first chapter of the Bible. Oh, how we truly have misunderstood. Oh, how we have misunderstood. Part two. I want to talk about the actual temples of Israel for a moment. You know, for the sake of time today, I'm not going to take as long with this next part as I just took with that last part. But it is important to note a bit of Israel's history here. After Egypt, off they go. And as they travelled, the Lord's presence dwelt with them. And it dwelt with them in their first form of a temple, the tabernacle. The tabernacle is another way of just saying a moving temple. This was a movable space. It could be packed down and moved and it could be set back up again. And it was, um, it was like a camping temple, essentially. It was a space that functioned so that they could follow God throughout the desert as God was leading them, set up and host God's presence. And then um, later on, we have King David. And after King David is his son, Solomon. And Solomon builds the first uh, full-time temple, the Temple of Solomon. And in 1 Kings 6 to 7, we actually see the recollection of what Solomon did and how they built the temple. It's all in there. You can just read the actual you know, outworking of building this structure. And in 1 Kings 8, something really important happens. The Ark of the Covenant, which is this box containing the tablets of stone from, from Moses on Mount Sinai, it, it gets brought to this building and it gets put in place in the temple. And it's kind of like inserting this piece in a circuit it fires up. The function of the temple begins to be at work. It's like a machine being turned on. Check this out in First Kings. Where are we? Here we go. First Kings eight. So when the priests came out of the holy place, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests could not continue their service because of the cloud, for the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. And Solomon prayed, Oh Lord, you have said that you would live in a thick cloud of darkness. Now I have built a glorious temple for you, a place where you can live forever. I mean, do you see what's going on here? What's happening is just like the Genesis story, after all has been made and all has been set as it should be, the Lord's presence comes and fills and is ruling. He's with his people again. And so from here, the life of the Israelite story revolves around this space. It literally hinges around the temple. 
It's about keeping the machine of it working as it was meant to. It required inputs. The inputs were things like offerings and sacrifices. And it would then get the outputs, the outputs of God's presence and his work of blessings and atonement for the people of Israel. This temple ends up being destroyed in the Babylonians. The Israelites end up enslaved in Babylon. And it's the loss of their temple that they are actually mourning and grieving the most. They're having to worship in another land. They're in another land of gods again. It's like Egypt all over again. They find themselves in another land with other temples and other idols. They miss their one. They miss theirs. They long for the presence of Yahweh to be with them again. And so when they're freed and they get to return home to Jerusalem, what do they set about doing? They set about building their temple again. They rebuild it. This is Herod's temple. This is the second one. This is the temple that is at work when we arrive into the world of Jesus. This is literally the building sitting on the skyline of Jerusalem. It's sitting there dominating the landscape, a bit like the sky tower tells us we're in Auckland. The temple told you you were in Jerusalem. It's the biggest architectural moment of that city. It's dominant. It's witnessing. It's telling of a story. And that brings me to the last part for today, the last piece. There's a new temple that Jesus announces amongst that temple, and he came to establish it. So like I just said, when Jesus arrives, he arrives into that world that I just showed you. That's the Jerusalem that is at play. That's what's going on. And in John chapter 4, Jesus is traveling, and we find an incredible story. And I'm just going to save some time. I'm just going to quickly retell it. But it's this moment, you'll recognize it if you've been in church for a while, where Jesus is, is, is traveling and he goes and he, he stops by a well for a drink. And at that well is a woman and that woman is a Samaritan woman. Jesus was thirsty and so he asks the woman, give me a drink. And the woman was surprised because as a Jew, he shouldn't be talking to her. And Jesus, operating at actually a completely different level to this woman, prophesies to her about living water. And she's still stuck thinking about the physical water in the well. He prophesies again, this time about her sin. He tells her everything she's done. And then she interrupts the flow of all of this to ask a very important question. The question is this. The woman at the well says, so tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place to worship? Remember that picture I just showed you? That big temple? You know, Jews are saying that is where we worship God. While we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship. What she is saying is, why does everything have to happen over at that temple? Why can't it it happen here? And in verse 21 and 23, Jesus answers her question with this. Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. A time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship Him that way. For God is spirit. So those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So let's let's just pause for a second and just catch what's going on here. There's a couple of things. Firstly, Remind ourselves of the bigger story. God has made the cosmos as a temple for himself to come and rule in. And then within that story, Israel made a temple to reflect that. It's this glorious presence of God came 
and filled that place and he ruled and rested there. And now, now Jesus is saying that all of that story is changing. It's pivoting. It's going in a new direction. God is doing a new thing. What is this new temple? What is this new temple? Well, the new temple is Jesus. It's him. He's the walking, living, breathing temple. And that's why later on when he speaks of his death, he says that bit where he says, um, you know, uh, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And then it says they realized after his death that he was speaking about himself. I am that new temple. And what else is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the fact that it will be his people who worship him in spirit and truth. People whose bodies and lives can awaken to the spirit. Their own spirit and reality. They're not just people who attend a temple or go to a place. Not that there's anything wrong with going to places. But they are people of a certain posture. This new posture of worship. This new posture of lives given over to the spirit. Postures of people living in the truth of the kingdom of God. The mistake we've often made with this little passage in John 4 is we think that the main point is the bit about spirit and in truth. But that's not the main point. That's just commentary to the main point. The main point is the temple is changing. The temple is on the move. The temple is Jesus Christ and his church. Can I get an Advent amen? Amen. I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying here. We often think of church as a place. We often think about it as a location. We often think about it as just some building. But it's the people. The people. You. Me. As real as we are right now, like as, as real as we are sitting on these seats, as real as that is, that is as tactile as Jesus imagines his church to become. A group of people where God's spirit is richly dwelling. This is the new glorious space. This is the people where God's rest and rule has taken up residence the people who can live in the reality of that truth. We, as human beings, we can be the church that is the new temple of God. So again, I, I come back to where we started last week and have dipped our toe in again this week. I come back to Paul's idea. I just keep bringing us back to this anchor. It's so important as we think about the incarnational life. Do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Asks St. Paul. Paul is not asking something small in this question. He is offering us a whole new way to be human in the story of Jesus. He's asking us, do you see what Christ was doing? Do you see what he was bringing into the world? Are you paying attention? He's offering a new way to be with our bodies and our lives lived that the habitation of God may be with us. That's what the Holy Spirit is, after all. The Holy Spirit is the habitation of God with us. 
And he says the glorious presence of God wants to reside in you, not some building, not some place built out of stone. You, God's glorious presence in you. He's saying your body, not just as a vehicle, but as a holy place. He is saying you are the new tactile temple. You are the new tactile temple. To close this up today, I just want to land in a couple of last thoughts. In Colossians, to his letter to the Colossae community, we read some different words from St. Paul to those in the Corinthians one, but they're in the same vein. He says this, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. And then he says this a little bit later in verse 27, Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. All of this talk about incarnation, all of this talk about this Advent moment, all this talk about Christmas is this talk of temple. And it's a matter that is crucially important because Paul is putting it here in the same way. Christ was tactile and real. And he shows us what God is like. Just like that big temple sitting on the skyline of Jerusalem used to show. And he is saying, you then, you then become the people where Christ is living in you, that the reality of God for God's glory may then be in the world. So Christ, Christ is this visible image of the invisible God. Meaning when we think about God, what's coming to mind? When I say the word, what, when I say, who is God to you? Is Christ emerging as one of your first answers? Is Christ one of the first things you pull out to say he is like this? Because if we are wondering what God is like, or if we're wondering what God's will is, we actually do not have to sort of go on some never ending dark quest of mystery. There's not some sort of illusion to walk into. Instead, we actually have a concrete and a sure person to follow and to imitate. I want to just reread to you our reading from today. Janae already read it, but just listen again. Dear friends, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and we touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and we proclaim to you that this is the, he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. Do you hear how tactile this is? How wonderfully tactile this is. Seen, heard, all of this interaction right in front of them. Humanity was placed as an idol into creation. 
in Genesis chapter one. And here we have the New Testament writers connecting us back to that idea and saying, Christ was placed into creation and we saw it right in front of us. We saw it, we, we heard from it. It, it. it conveyed God to us. He was the living idol in the temple. The thing is, is that for so many, we just don't seem to have seen this tactile Christ or what he was revealing. And we're ignoring the tactility of all of this. We're in a moment of the church which is going through a deconstruction crisis. And we're so enamored with faith being some sort of spiritual only and mystery drenched quest that we've actually lost the counterbalance to all of this. Christ in his incarnation anchored God into matter and time and reality. And he is still revealing that to us today. You know, for so many people, it sounds like God has just sort of become this thing that's like a light at the end of the tunnel that I'll never get to. I'll never be able to reach that little beam of light at the end. So I just give up into this darkness. I give up into the mystery. The mystery wins. I'll never know. And it can't be enjoyed. But I just want to say this. If your trump card for things in your faith as well is just a mystery, you are missing out on a very crucial piece of being a Christ follower. Because it's not all mystery, my friends. Yep, there's a fair amount of it. I'm not taking mystery off the table. But what I am trying to say is I'm trying to swing the counterbalance a little bit today. And I'm trying to say there is a lot of certainty in faith too. And the certainty is this, and nothing other than this. It is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It is Emmanuel, the God who was with us. It is the Christ. My observation of the last couple of years of church is that we have been torn in all kinds of directions as we've tried to follow other things that we think we would find certainty in. Some of us have put all of our eggs into the Old Testament basket again. Well, we're just David facing Goliath. Or we're circling the desert again like Moses. Or we're the exiles leaving Babylon. For some people, we've put all of our eggs into the New Testament basket and we've gone, it's just a new work of the Spirit. All of the stuff is gone. Doesn't matter. It's God's doing a new thing. Just tune into the Spirit. But what I want to say is that it's not actually about living between those two testaments like that at all. It is about bringing ourselves back to the crescendo between where at Christmas we are reminded that we are the people of the incarnate God. So if this is unraveling you a little bit today, if I'm just sort of slightly picking at a few threads here and it's making you a bit uncomfortable, I just want to say something that echoes what um, Natalie said last week. Uh, sorry, it's not last week. She said just before. <laughs> it's been a long week. Um, you know, here at Central Vineyard, we say this all the time. We, we want to do everything centered on Jesus. Now that's not to say that we're not interested in the Father and we're not interested in the Spirit. Because actually, as we looked at last week, we're utterly convinced that Christ shows us the Father. The best way to see the Father is through what Christ is showing us. And as we've also looked at in our series, Christ was empowered by the Spirit. Christ was baptized and, and filled with the Spirit and went on his mission. 
So it's not about removing those two pieces. We're not saying it's only about Christ and the Father and the Spirit don't matter. What we are trying to say is like what Paul is saying. In Christ, we can see and taste a tactile reality. And that is who we want to be. In Christ, we can know a way. In Christ, we can see truth. In Christ, we can experience a life. It all really is about Jesus. And so as we come to Christmas, as we come to Christmas, please, please don't go on some whimsical mystery journey for the next couple of weeks. Come to the gritty and earthy reality of the incarnation. The fact that God came and got tactile. Just like you could have gone up and touched the wall of the temple. Just like you can feel your own body right now sitting in your chair. God was tactile in Jesus. This is a great mystery in itself. Fully God and fully man. I'm not taking mystery off the table. But with that truth is also great certainty. And Paul goes on to say in Colossians, another little phrase that's beautiful, all of the fullness of God dwelt in Christ. All of the fullness of God dwelt in Christ. All of God's character is found in Christ. We are, um, as Brad Juzak put it in the title of his book, um, a more Christ-like God is the title of his book. We are to realize that what we see in Jesus is what we will see in God. There's no bait and switch. There's no, oh, I've tricked you. It's just what we see in Jesus is revealing us God. Literally, he is showing us the heart of the Father. His promises are his promises. To live in the life that he's promised are his promises that he has given us. And it is a life that is tactile with God. My advocate I will give you, he says. My spirit I will send you, he says. You will become the new living, breathing temple. Which is why for the last six months, we have looked at how Jesus was the one who was spirit-empowered that we too may be the Spirit-empowered people. Jesus showed us that he was word-anchored. We too want to be word-anchored people. Jesus was consecrated and holy, so we too want to be consecrated and holy. Jesus was compassionate and merciful, so we too, we want to be compassionate and merciful people. Jesus prayed, he had a life of prayer, so we too must be prayer-filled people. These are not just theories. They are our lives getting tactile with God, this is where faith gets tactile. And so this is my closing piece this morning. That is what incarnational life is all about. Incarnation is just another way of saying a tactile life with God.